As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. So, Joelle, what? If you could map in your city everywhere where hipsters are chowing down on bone marrow. I would probably avoid that part of town. <laughs> Incredibly useful information, though. <laughs> and, and what if you could use the weather to influence your ad spend in a given day for the products that you're selling? That sounds pretty intriguing. Right? And then what if you could collect data from anywhere in the world, no matter how remote, report it back in real time that would influence changes to global health policy. Now we're getting above my pay grade, but it it really fascinates me. <laughs> right. Well, that is what we're going to be talking about today uh, with, uh, with all of these stories, but the interesting ways that people are using data in their business. Welcome to Rocketship.fm podcast where we explore startups from funding to growth, from culture to sales and everything in between. I'm Michael Saka. And I'm Joelle Goldman. So today we have four stories of how people are using data from the funny of being able to identify where hipsters are hanging out in your city, all the way through to how big data is helping to shape global health policy and save lives around the world. So stay tuned. We're going to get right into it. So our first story is about a word map that Yelp created in 2013 in an effort to help people find interesting places around their city. So whether you're looking to dine with hipsters or completely avoid the scene altogether, 
Yelp used an int- data in an interesting way. It's really for marketing. What they wanted to do was give people a tool that they could use that, you know, half ironic, half informational, would give them insights into what's happening inside of their city. It's kind of like a heat map of different words. So you can search hipster in your city and heat maps will kind of come up in different neighborhoods depending on that word. Uh, You can search also things like, you know, noodles or patio or, you know, anything maybe a little more helpful than, than singling out you know, a group of people, but. And this landed them a bunch of notable mentions, right? Companies are always looking for press and this got to Mashables, it got to Eater, it got to Slate, probably driving a lot of renewed interest in Yelp and giving people a reason to mention Yelp in conversation. So you're in San Diego, right? Yep. So if I put in hangover in San Diego. Wait, let me guess. <laughs> You're going to have downtown gas lamp uh-huh. and Pacific Beach. <laughs> yep. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> That's pretty accurate. Yeah, that sounds pretty dead on, right? Now, what if we what if we look at brunch? I'm going to guess La Jolla and North Park. Yes, actually, plus the gas lamp district because... Mm-hmm. Everyone's hungover. (laughs) (laughs) So this is an interesting kind of marketing um, play for for Yelp, wherein a a lot of the major cities, they're using their vast amount of data uh, to get people to not only search, probably have a quick laugh and then share about their favorite locations and, and where they're hanging out. And I think it's interesting, too, because Yelp has really relied so far on people finding a very specific location to eat if we're talking about restaurants. Um, And I think there's much more of an interest now in what neighborhoods to be in, especially if you're traveling. Like, where do you want to be hanging out? And so I think there's something, you know, this this was kind of our silly one. But I actually think this is something that might affect my life on more occasions than some of the other really interesting things we're going to talk about today. And I think it can serve as a great case study for anyone looking about what to build. How do I stand out in this very cluttered marketing world? How do you can always use the data that you're generating or data that you find to create something interesting, to create a conversation for people. You don't always have to write the whole conversation. You can just give tools in order to build a conversation on top of. All right, so this next one I really like a lot, and it's it's about how weather can dictate buying patterns. So, Michael, let me ask you, when it's cold and rainy outside, which is a funny question for you because you live in Las Vegas, but when, it, when you get that one kind of cold, rainy day a year, what do you want to eat? I think there's only one answer for that. Pork chops. You would not be alone. Uh, comfort food is the most searched kind of food when when weather is cold. And Google's data actually shows that the specific searches for pork chops, meatballs, chocolate chip cookies, apple streusel, French toast, all those delicious comfort foods really spike during not only the winter season, but every time there's a blizzard. And so the food industry is actually latching onto this. And, and they are actually using this data to 
dictate some of their ad campaign spend. And not only that, uh, McDonald's is doing things like changing the items on their digital menu boards based on this data. And I've actually tried this with a with an app um, that we developed a couple years ago. It's an app for children um, called Bilingual Child, and we tried running weather related uh, ad campaigns in cities where it was raining. So we were correlating our ad campaign with a rainy day, where we figured the parents would be stuck inside and would need to enter- find something to entertain their children. And what better than a language learning game? So at least they're not they're not playing junk. So you kind of just did this based on a gut feeling on your hunch that um, that would be kind of a smart move on a rainy day. Did you see any significant results by doing that? Well, I, I don't think we had the budget to spend to get anything kind of meaningful out of it. Um, but, you know, we definitely made a couple sales in Iowa on a, on a couple rainy days and you know, maybe they saw our ad um, and clicked on it. I like to think so. But I think it's really interesting to think about this kind of data and different ways that we can leverage data in order to make our campaigns more effective. Our goal was to actually save money by only advertising at a time when people were more likely to buy, or at least we thought people were more likely to buy. You know, just based on the weather, we can see patterns changing in what people eat and how businesses are capitalizing on that, Uh, what people might buy like the uh, bilingual child app when it's when it's cold and rainy out. Another interesting one we saw here was uh, a study showed that when there's a snowstorm of about 10 inches, the number of four-wheel drive cars that they were able to sell increased by 6% for about two or three weeks after that one storm. It's pretty amazing. And on the flip side of that, houses with swimming pools uh, sold at a higher rate during the summer than they did at other times of the year. Which makes complete sense, right? You want what you want when, when you, you want, want it, it. right? <laughs> Be it a house or a four-wheeler. Yeah, so I think, you know, the the theme that I'm seeing starting to tie these stories together is we always think about data in terms of uh, things you might be clicking on and someone's tracking that. But really the big trend is behavior. Everything that you're doing is kind of being tracked whether you realize it or not. The data behind your behavior is going to dictate a lot of the things you may be offered in the future. So we have two more stories on how people and companies are using big data to influence their decisions, including how big data is affecting world health policy. But first, a quick message from our sponsor. Now, back to the show. So this is an interesting one because it gets a little more into the realm of, of Big Brother, uh, especially when when it's your employer kind of watching your patterns and your habits. But guys, what is this? Guys, all of you out right now. Jared, I'm here to tell you that I'm quitting. This is actually something that Google kind of pioneered. Uh, a long time ago when they started really tracking employee behavior to predict when they were going to turn over. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of creepy, but you, you imagine like your boss coming over and saying, hey, we see you're getting restless. Can we offer you a raise? What are some of the things that your company could track in your patterns and behaviors that might indicate you're one foot out the door? 
So there's one that that Charles Duhigg, uh, who wrote The Power of Habit, uh, described, where at 3.30, he would go to the cafeteria to buy a cookie. That sounds pretty harmless. Right? But he, he realized that at 3.30, he was bored. He was, he was getting restless and bored and wanted to get away from his desk. So this is like the classic water cooler. Go uh, gossip with your co-workers for a little bit. Right. And so effectively, I think mentally he was done at 3.30, right? And so so he wasn't being challenged and he was definitely looking for something new. Now, if, if you're a Google, you can easily recognize this type of behavior or pattern or even just a simple change in someone's daily pattern. And so again, you can start to see patterns in behavior where you know, some percentage of people who have the same behavior pattern are likely to leave. Yeah. And it's more of an indicator. I mean, people who change their pattern, it probably just means that something is going on. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're about to leave. A pattern could be a good thing. They could be more excited about the job. It could be a bad thing. And, And that's where data and the human interaction kind of intersect, where it could alert someone, say a manager, that there's a change in behavior. Now let's analyze and see if this is a positive or negative change. So Joel, what was that other example that we hit when we were doing the research? Yeah, the one I heard um, was a little more direct, which is uh, when employees start to pull down a bunch of files and start to, you know, kind of hoard uh, either all at once or kind of daily start to increase the number of files that they're pulling off a server. That is usually an indication that they are gathering up their things and getting ready to go. And that makes total sense. I wonder what happens when the company goes over to you and says, hey, I noticed you pulled all the files down. You know, yeah, this this is why this is an interesting one because, you know, if you look at it from the employer's perspective, they're just trying to mitigate their risk. You know, they invest a lot in you as an employee. They want to know before you get to the point of leaving if, if they can save you. Uh, from the employee's perspective, it's a little creepy. And while we were researching this, I mean, there's a couple examples out there about how Google tracks and there's a couple companies that even offer this as a service, but we couldn't find a whole lot of concrete data that they were using that would indicate an employee is, is leaving. So there may be some secret sauce behind this uh, and it, it may be a little bit more wishful thinking than actual implementation. Uh, But it's fascinating to really think about. story on big data, we talked with Dr. Joel Salinikio. I'm a, a you know, physician and pediatrician by training. I still practice a little bit of pediatrics at Georgetown. And uh, for, for years, I worked for the Centers for Disease Control in global health. And he was always interested in data and now what's considered big data. But he was amazed at the lack of adoption of new tools for collecting and tracking data that could really help them in their study. You know, looking at basically lots of problems in health in poor countries. And in all those cases, we had to gather data. And I was just because I had a background in computing. I was just so really 
amazed at the lack of adoption. And this was, you know, this is 15 years ago already, but the lack of adoption, even of the, the mobile technologies of the time, like Palm Pilots. And so that set me on a course to, to try to create um, uh, affordable, uh, usable systems for uh, regular folks working, uh, whether in governments or the UN or nonprofits or even commercial enterprises, to be able to uh, initially really just to collect data. That was our only, our only real focus. And the mission behind that data was to make better decisions on global health care and to track progress in the initiatives that they were taking on. Now, what do these initiatives look like? Well, here's an example from Joel. I was working on child vaccination programs. And if you want to, let's say, you want to vaccinate kids in a country where they don't routinely get vaccinated by uh, either the government and there's no real system of, you know, doctors, right? So let's, you know, let's pick some imaginary uh, country that's very poor. Um, most people in the country, and this would be pretty typical, never encounter a physician or a clinic or a nurse. Um, uh, many people living in rural areas and there's no opportunity for kids to get vaccinated. Well, you know, of all the things that we can do to save kids' lives, vaccination is probably the, you know, the, 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 the biggest no-brainer of all because we know that it works. You know, if you vaccinate a kid against measles, that kid is not going to die of measles. And we've, I think, forgotten in the United States that, that children do die of measles, uh, especially poor kids, because we've managed to vaccinate so successfully. But in, in, you know, in lots of poor countries, I mean, every year, hundreds of thousands of kids die still from not being vaccinated against measles. So if you wanted to, you know, have a vaccination campaign, right, so rather than getting kids vaccinated at pediatricians or you might have big national vaccination days and you, you publicize these way in advance and you get, you know, in some cases, literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of kids. The idea is to get them all to some vaccination center over the course of a couple weeks and, and vaccinate as many of the kids in the country as possible. Now, if you wanted to then benchmark that and say, we vaccinated 50% of the children in this country, you would need a number, a denominator to divide the number of children that you vaccinated by so that you would know the percentage of the children that you vaccinated from the total percentage of children in that country. But unfortunately, finding that data can be very, very difficult as birth records and birth certificates and census data are often not kept up to date. And the only way, therefore, uh, and this is still the case for many, many countries, the only way that you can determine how successful you were is to do a community-based survey in which you basically knock on a sample of households and you say, hey, I want to ask you some questions. Uh, do you have any kids? Great, you got three kids. Uh, did your kids get vaccinated at the vaccination campaign? And by doing this incredibly laborious work out in the field, knocking on doors, house to house, um, you're able to come up with a number or rather a percentage of kids that got vaccinated um, out of the entire population of kids. And these types of surveys were largely done on paper. And then they would be mailed back stateside and manually entered into a computer by a person before that data could ever be analyzed. And so this could take weeks, months, and sometimes even years before anything would really come of it. And so anyone who was making decisions about their future actions or what initiatives to take next, they would be months or sometimes years behind the data when it came time to even make those decisions. 
but we figured, you know, it takes weeks to sometimes months, sometimes even longer than that, to enter the, you know, 30,000 pieces of paper that you've managed to fill out to enter them into a computer. Maybe we can eliminate that, let's say, six-month period of data entry entirely. So at the time, they equipped mobile aid workers with devices that they could bring home. The data could be instantly uploaded. So it sped up the process, but it wasn't perfect. And at that time, this being 15 years ago, it was hard to imagine the rapid advancements we were going to have in this space. But those advancements led to some incredible breakthroughs in the data collection and analysis side. Once everyone, not only the health aid workers now today, but even the residents of these countries are able to easily afford a mobile device. Even the people, you know, as I said, people living in, in huts made of sticks would be able to afford maybe not one per person, but one per family. And, and, you know, keeping in mind that each of these devices, the most primitive, the most absolutely horrific of these devices, has much more computing power than, say, the U.S. government did when they put the men on the moon in 1969. So how has this changed for companies? What are they able to do now? You know, I mean, it used to be you'd, you'd have to put in a year's worth of data collection and typing and analysis before you'd have the answer to the question, what percentage of kids in Vietnam are, are malnourished? Right now, that data can be that data collection can be ongoing, not just a survey that happens once every five years or every 10 years. And for companies raising money to make a difference in these these parts of the world, that is a huge burden lifted off of them. They can now make decisions in real time. Also, they don't have to fund that entire year where they were waiting for some of this data and for all of that data collection and the data entry, which makes all of the money donated to their cause go a lot farther. And now the other major shift that's starting to happen is that they don't even need to send aid workers into the field to collect this data in person. This data can actually be collected directly from the people who live in the community. In many cases, we can start to replace the process of going and knocking on doors with what we often see in the United States, which is that, you know, data is is sent in by the, the, the people in the community. You know, you buy something online at Amazon, right? Amazon doesn't have to survey you once every five years to find out what kind of things you like to buy. And neither does the Commerce Department. Um, but in, in, in poor countries now, we have the very first glimmer of being able to do things like telephone polling or SMS polling of populations, which saves an enormous, enormous amount of time and money and labor. And so the impact this is having is immediate. The, the spread of computing power, mobile computing and, and internet, is, is beefing up the capabilities of every single ministry of health in the world. Um, and so maybe we can even move, we can even start to think about situations where we move away from uh, we move away from the, the giant campaigns. And when we look at what can be done with all of this data, it's incredibly inspiring to see where we came from and to where we can go in the very near future. Right. We don't know how many kids were born last year in Bolivia. We don't know how many kids died last week in, you know, in Zimbabwe. But we're not even close to having 
a great understanding of that kind of thing. In many cases, we're still, we still use population figures from whenever the last census was done, which might have been five, six years ago or seven years ago, like a wildly out of date. So I think when you ask, you know, sort of what benefit could real-time data be, you got to understand that we're, we're, we're jumping from a situation where, where people don't know anything into a real-time data situation. And it's, it's, I think it's, it's transformative. And these are people's lives we're talking about. I mean, we joke about hipsters eating bone marrow in San Diego, but when we look at how global data could help to shift the future of our planet, this is what it looks like. This is the type of data that we need to be collecting. And this is the type of work that we can do with it. We, we can really help to shape global health policy and to shape the decisions that people are making who are working in the field in real time. So for all of the harm that we could potentially do with data and Big Brother, there's also so much good that can come from data created for and by humans. want to learn more about magpie go to magpi.com huge thanks to segment.com for sponsoring this series go to segment.com forward slash rocket ship and you'll get three hundred dollars off of a team plan so go check that out today and help support the show. If you haven't yet, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. Tell us why you're listening. Why did you listen this far? I want to know. We're obviously doing something that's working for you. We'll have another interview coming out here this Sunday. And then next Wednesday is the conclusion of our data series. And we're going to look at data as currency and the implications of that. You can follow along with Rocketship on Twitter at RocketshipFM. You can follow me at Michael Saka and Joel at Joel Goldman. 